When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've covered a lot of hurricanes in my career, and this one was for the record books. It's going to take a while to assess the damage on the southwest coast, which was impacted by a near Category 5 hurricane, one of the most powerful Florida and the entire U.S. has ever experienced. The death toll has yet to be finalized, but the path of destruction is tragic. Today is Thursday when I'm taping this for our Sunday broadcast, and I know in the next few days we're about to see the power of what a Category 4 borderline Category 5 hurricane can do to the coastline and devastate lives and livelihoods. People are going to need our prayers and our help, and we need to do what we can. I thought today's podcast should reflect about what happened there, so I brought on a couple of very experienced guests. My friend and colleague, Amy Fries, will talk to us about what it was like covering the storm on Fox Weather, across the hall from me, and her amazing career path that got her here. And a new friend of mine who has a really awesome job as a Hurricane Hunter team member for NOAA. Nick Underwood is an aerospace engineer for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Hurricane Hunters. He's flown into hurricanes across the Atlantic and the Pacific, and he flew through Ian gathering data and observations as the storm was intensifying in the Gulf of Mexico before making landfall. Here's my interview with NOAA aerospace engineer with the NOAA Hurricane Hunter team, Nick Underwood. Obviously a devastating storm. Um, you know, I, I, we don't even know how bad it really was. Um, and that's kind of the hard part. You know, you forecast these storms, you do the best that you can to make sure people have all the information they need. And then it's really up to, you know, the folks to decide what they're going to do in that situation. Yeah. Um, and that's the whole reason that we fly these missions into the storms is to collect data so that the forecast models so can be more accurate, so that the watches and warnings can be issued earlier. Um, and it, it does come down to people actually heeding the warnings from the National Hurricane Center and their local officials. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you do. What, you know, obviously a hurricane hunter, when you think about it, it's like, oh, this seems to be an exciting job. And I'm sure it is. <laughs> but you are providing life-saving information. Uh, my job uh, with the NOAA Hurricane Hunters is I'm an engineer. And so in my position, I work with scientists to figure out uh, how we are going to implement new and exciting science instruments onto our fleet of aircraft, whether it's for hurricanes or atmospheric rivers or marine mammal surveys, whatever. Um, on this particular flight series into Hurricane Ian, I was acting more of a project manager for some new and interesting technology that we were deploying uh, and just helping to facilitate that, make sure that we were able to get it safely on the aircraft and then safely out of the aircraft uh, while we were flying through um, turbulent conditions. Tell me about that information or the new technology that you're using. Um, I don't have, uh, I won't say too much about it. And Noah's going to put out some official um, um, 
publications on it in the next uh, couple days or so. Okay. Um, but it's a small, uncrewed aerial system that we launch from the aircraft, and then it can go um, really to the places in the storm that we can't go. Uh, so it can go to lower altitudes, it can go into the more uh, violent parts of the storm and collect some data that otherwise we really wouldn't get. And so it's new technology. Uh, Noah's very excited about it and we're happy to support it. Mm. How long have Hurricane Hunters been around? Uh, I think the the lore is that uh, the first Hurricane Hunter flight was in the 60s um, out of Texas. Uh, the NOAA Hurricane Hunters, specifically with our uh, P-3 Orion aircraft, which we're still operating today, um, those aircraft um, rolled off the assembly line in the mid-1970s. Hmm. Um, and so we've been doing this for decades of collecting data to improve forecast. What kind of education do you have to have to do something fancy like this? <laughs> uh, we've got a lot of different career paths, actually. Uh, my background is aerospace engineering we have uh, NOAA Corps officers who are our pilots and navigators. We have meteorologists. We have um, electronics technicians. We have aircraft maintenance people. Uh, so there's really just a lot of different ways that you can get into this. Mm -hmm. And what stage do you start flying out to these systems? It uh, depends. Um, We'll fly missions either if they're going to, if the storm is, looks like it's going to impact land, mm -hmm. whether that's in the United States or our friends in the Caribbean and Central America, um, or we'll fly a storm just if it has research value. And so we'll fly anything from an open tropical wave making its way across the Atlantic Ocean up to a Cat 5 hurricane. Mm. And I mean, this was such a powerful hurricane. Now you flew in the Cat 5, right, Panhandle a couple of years ago? So Michael was one that I actually did not fly into. Um, Matthew, however, in 2016, that was my first hurricane. Um, so I had been on the job for just about two months and tagged along as an observer just to see what it was like, see what I was really getting into. Um, that flight for me, the first two hours were fine. The subsequent six were not so much, but I still enjoyed it enough and was really impressed by the the teamwork and just the people uh, that make all of this happen that I was excited to stick around. Mm -hmm. And the flights are eight hours each? Uh, typically so. Um, we can fly a little bit longer, especially if we um, pack some extra gas or if we're doing like a mission and route between islands to stay away from storms. Um, my longest flight actually uh, was earlier this year. We were out in Guam in the Pacific Ocean uh, supporting another science mission. And we flew back from Guam to Hawaii, and we're in the air for something like 11 hours. So we've got a lot of endurance with these aircraft. Mm -hmm. And on social media, I mean, you posted video, right, of, of you flying Ian. Uh, yeah, and that's something that I always try to do um, when I am able to get on these flights is to share what we see up there. Because, you know, like we're up there to gather all of this important data and that feeds forecast models, but it's it can be a lot more impactful, especially with the power of social media, to really show what we're actually seeing and what we're actually doing up there. And um, so I, I always try to push that out. And I know that um, we as an organization like to share the videos and photos, whatever else that our crews are able to gather while they fly these missions. And this was a bumpy ride, right? <laughs> uh, yesterday morning's flight into Ian was the bumpiest the sportiest that I've had 
uh, in my six years of doing this. Wow. Why? It was just a lot of turbulence, um, a lot of both vertical up and down turbulence and lateral side to side turbulence. There was a lot of lightning, especially in the eye wall and in the eye, which was something that um, you really don't see all that often with more powerful storms. Um, and it was just, we, we only did one pass yesterday through the storm, but it's still, uh, you know, that I think that was enough for us yesterday. At what stage were you in, Ian? Uh, we took off from uh, Ellington Field in Texas around 4 a.m. Eastern, okay. and we're in the storm at around 6 a.m. Eastern. This is when it was intensifying up to its Category 4 peak. This wow. is um, as it was approaching the Gulf Coast of Florida. What is the difference? You know, when it's strengthening, can you feel that? Do you know that that's happening while you're in there? Um, you can get a lot more um, cellular activity uh, just with like individual thunderstorms around the eye. Um, rapid intensification where a storm gains a lot of power over the course of 24 hours is something that we actually brief as a flight crew. Um, and it's an additional hazard that we put into consideration when we go to fly storms. Um, Ian specifically did not meet the threshold for rapid intensification, but it still was growing in size and power uh, at a pretty good rate. How do you get into the storm? So we descend down to our operational altitude, which is usually between eight to 10,000 feet above the water. We strap everything down, stow everything that is loose and might pop up. Um, everyone sits down, puts their seatbelts on. And then our flight director, who is our meteorologist on board, is looking at the radar data that we're collecting from the aircraft. And they pick out what looks like the best track through the storm, uh, where we're going to encounter the least violent parts of the storm, um, but still get in there to the high winds um, and into the eye of the storm. Um, so we pick that track. We fly um, perpendicular to the winds. And so they're coming at our side. And so you get this interesting angle because the winds are pushing you so much. So you're the plane is pointing one way, but you're moving a different direction. Uh, and then once we get in the eye, that's where we really do the hunting part. And so we're flying around trying to find the point where the winds drop to zero because that's where the lowest pressure is going to be. That's where all of that energy flowing around the storm is going to try to flow to. Mm -hmm. And tell me about the drop sound. Yes. So drop sounds are um, one of the primary instruments that we use to collect data on hurricanes in addition to our radars on board. Um, launching drop sounds is primarily what I've done on these flights over the last six years. So they're small, um, think of a weather balloon in reverse. So it's a small sensor package that we drop from the bottom of the aircraft. It collects temperature, pressure, humidity, speed, and wind direction data, and sends all of that back to the aircraft in real time. And so once that sun splashes in the ocean, we send that data off to the National Hurricane Center, and they can start evaluating it and uh, factoring it into those computer models. Mm -hmm. You know, we see that information now, too. When I'm on the air, we have a graphic that shows you guys in the Hurricane Hunter planes uh, doing your job. And I know that we got a report of a 158-mile-per-hour wind, uh, which would, you know, technically make it a Cat 5. But tell me, you know, what goes into that? Um, so for... 
hurricane intensity, the, the category system, the Saffir-Simpson wind scale, all of that is based on a one on a one minute sustained wind. Okay. So although you may get gusts that go up above what the Cat 5 threshold is, mm-hmm. the Saffir-Simpson scale is based on that one minute sustain. Um, and so uh, even though you might see some higher numbers, it doesn't necessarily mean that that is, uh, you know, factored into the category. Mm-hmm. And so I saw two different planes flying through that. Does that happen often? Uh, it happens all the time. And so uh, NOAA, the Aircraft Operations Center, we have three aircraft that we use to hunt hurricanes. We have two P-3 Orions. Those are our four-engine propeller planes that are flying through the storm. We also have a Gulfstream Four, which is a modified business jet that we fly up above, around, and in front of the storms. Uh, collecting all of that upper atmospheric data that really sort of drives where the storm is going to go. And in addition to us, there's our partners at the Air Force 53rd uh, Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. And they have, I think, 10 C-130s that they use to do a very similar mission to what the P-3s do, where they're flying through the storm, launching drop sons, collecting that flight level data. Do you share that information with each other? Uh, all of the information that we collect, whether it's uh, the radar imagery or data from drop sounds, all of that gets published uh, by NOAA and is accessible to the public. It's accessible to our international partners, especially when storms are heading towards Mexico or islands in the Caribbean. Um, all of that is available. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the forecasting in the future? Are we getting better? Are we, um, you know, I I feel like, you know, the the tracking is good. I feel like what happened with this storm, we we thought it was a Tampa Bay storm, and then it went south of that. So, you know, I feel like we need to be better. We need to be better at our jobs. But then when you look back 50 years from now, you know, 50 years ago, when we didn't have like, you know, satellite technology that we have today, we didn't have as, you know, mech t- technology that you use every day. How can we get better? Uh, we constantly are. And the National Hurricane Center is always looking at those metrics of how accurate was their forecast compared to what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten really good with track forecasting. Um, what used to be a three-day forecast 15 years ago is now a five-day forecast. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like much, but it's 48 extra hours for people to sort of figure out their plans, make sure that their homes are secure, figuring out if they need to evacuate or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the more data that we can collect, the better we get at um, the computer modeling, the new types of data that we can start collecting. Um, all of that is gonna continue to improve those forecasts. And um, intensity is the one thing that we're still uh, really trying to get better at, but there's a lot of good and a lot of good and really smart people at the National Hurricane Center, at the Hurricane Research Division for NOAA that are you know, dedicating their lives to really figuring out how to get those forecasts exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. I mean, listen, uh, we have to get better. Um, but in the end, it's like we can give you the information and it's really up to your family what you do with that information and whether or not you evacuate, you listen to your local officials. It really is sort of, it's teamwork. It really is. And uh, that aspect of it, the the social science of hazard communication, of um, evacuation information, communication, um, that's another thing that the National Hurricane Center uh, puts a lot of resources into because um, it's one thing to make a forecast, but you have to present that 
you have to get that information to the public in such a way that they're going to pay attention to it and heed those warnings. Mm -hmm. Do you ever pinch yourself? I mean, looking at a hurricane, a perfect hurricane on a satellite image is something that will take your breath away. It really is. And that's one thing that, you know, I've been able to do over the last few years is really share what we're able to see up there in the storms. Um, and while these are you know, powerful systems that, you know, go and blow down people's homes and ruin communities, um, they are still a force of nature. And there is some beauty in there, especially with the more powerful storms, the categories three and above. When you get into the eye, you get what's called the stadium effect, mm -hmm. where the clouds above have cleared out and you're sort of at the bottom of this big bowl um, looking up at all the cloud tops around you. It is beautiful, but it's also uh, humbling because it's a reminder of just how powerful these storms are um, and just how dangerous they can be to people on the ground. Mm -hmm. How dangerous is what you do? There's risk with every flight, um, but we do everything we can to mitigate those risks as much as possible. We have fantastic maintenance personnel who are always taking great care of the aircraft. Everyone who gets on that aircraft, whether they're pilots or meteorologists, engineers, navigators, whoever, they go through rigorous training to make sure that they understand emergency procedures, to make sure that they understand how to do their job well. Uh, and so it's it's a big team that comes together, all these different people with different skill sets, but everyone is just dedicated, focused on the mission. Um, and with that kind of preparation, a lot of those risks really do get uh, mitigated out. Mm -hmm. What's next for you? I mean, there's not really anything on the horizon just yet. And it's been it's been a quiet hurricane season, but I've always said it only takes one to make it a really busy year. And this is this is the year. It does only take one storm. And for us, um, our aircraft are currently in Texas because it's out of the path of Ian. But once the storm passes, we'll go back to our base of operations in Lakeland, Florida. We'll do maintenance on the aircraft. We'll give the crews time to rest, see their families, uh, clean up their homes because, you know, Lakeland is also impacted by Hurricane Ian. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll just be standing at the ready for the next one, whether it's later this season or next year sometime. Mm -hmm. And uh, what are the names of the of the planes? <laughs> so our three hurricane hunting aircraft, we've got uh, Kermit, which is uh, NOAA 42. We've got Miss Piggy which is NOAA 43. Those are our two P3 Orions. And then Gonzo is the G4. That's the high altitude surveillance jet. Somebody was a Muppets fan. Somebody was a Muppets fan. Uh, and the, the nose art that we have uh, on the aircraft is actually, you know, drawn up by the Jim Henson company. And, uh, you know, that was, that was a very nice uh, thing of them to do for us. That's very cool. Can the public go and see these planes? Uh, we do offer tours. Um, we have really not done that over the last couple of years with the pandemic, um, but I think we're looking to start that up at some point in the near future again um, uh, with school visits and, and whoever else. Um, for the most part, though, uh, a lot of our outreach will do um, at air shows. So like Oshkosh in Wisconsin or Sun and Fun in Lakeland, Florida. Those are great opportunities to go see the aircraft, go talk to the pilots and the engineers, the maintainers, whoever else. Um, those are always really good opportunities to um, for us to share the mission that we do. 
Nick, you are a really impressive young man, uh, and I love you. I love your social media. So give me what's your what's your handle? Uh, <laughs> my my social media handle is uh, at the Astro Nick. Um, it's Astro because I have a long term goal of being an astronaut. If that works out, great. If not, I've got a fantastic job hunting hurricanes with some uh, some pretty incredible people. Well, that's awesome. So what else do you have to do to become an astronaut? Uh, I, I need to finish my master's degree. That's my one hurdle. Uh, and obviously, um, working full time in a job like this takes a lot of your time away that you could otherwise be writing a thesis for a master's degree. But uh, my advisor, my committee, they're very understanding of that. So I, I appreciate them a lot for that. What do you tell kids that want to do this? Uh, we get a lot of interest. Um, and, you know, I have gone and talked to grade schoolers, middle schoolers, high schoolers. Um, everyone is always interested in this stuff because it is exciting. Um, the big thing, whether you're going to be a pilot, engineer, meteorologist, whatever, um, math is the big thing. Mm -hmm. So you got to enjoy some math. Um, get good grades in school. I, uh, I studied engineering, but you can go study meteorology. Um, to be a NOAA Corps officer and be one of our pilots, you also have to have a science degree of some type. Um, so really just, it starts with that basic interest in in science and you know wanting to understand uh, the world around you. Do you remember what age you were when you clicked into that? <laughs> uh, for me specifically, uh, I knew I wanted to be an astronaut in eighth grade because I went to Kennedy Space Center with my parents. I watched a rocket launch and I said, I want to do that. Um, I've been doing hurricane hunting for six years, seven years ago, I didn't know hurricane hunting was a job. And so this was something that I just kind of stumbled upon, but it's been, uh, just an incredible journey for me so far. And I'm, I'm really fortunate to have found this and to, um, be able to work with such fantastic people in such a, in such a great job. It's really cool, Nick. And even if people visit you on your social media on Twitter, just to see you interacting with people, I think you just announced like, hey, I'm going to be flying in the storm, Ian. And if you have any questions and people asked you really good questions. And then there was the person who asked you if you drop Snickers into the into the hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, I, I use Twitter to try to disseminate that, uh, you know, positive information like, hey, follow the National Hurricane Center. Hey, here's what we're doing. Uh, with this aircraft and why we're doing it. Uh, but at the same time, it is a good space uh, for a little bit of levity. Mm -hmm. And so I do enjoy, you know, posting my own jokes. It's always good when I can find someone to banter with on there. It's because um, this is this is a serious business. Yeah. Um, you know, people's lives and homes are affected. And it's uh, it's tough to go and do this job without having some kind of break like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you do a good job. I highly recommend uh, visiting your social media page. The Astro Nick, is it? Yes. The Astro Nick. The Astro Nick. Okay, I love it. it. Good job, my friend. Uh, I will keep in touch, and, uh, and I appreciate all that you do and all that Noah does to help us do our jobs better. Thank you so much for having me. We really appreciate it. Um, be sure, if you're going to promote you know, my own personal account, please promote the National Hurricane Center Twitter account, the official NOAA Hurricane Hunter Twitter account uh, before me. I'm just one small part of this process, uh, one small member of this big team 
of people uh, working to keep people safe. Listen, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate the National Hurricane Center, all the good work that they do. They really, they really are saving lives. So I thank you. I thank you for being a very good ambassador for them. <laughs> thank you much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. If you would like to find out more about the amazing things NOAA and the Hurricane Hunters are doing, you can head to their webpage at www.omao.noaa.gov. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Up next, my interview with meteorologist Amy Fries, who has been a legend here in New York City for many years, working for the local ABC channel and now here at Fox Weather. I've long admired her for her work as a broadcast meteorologist and the wonderful way she communicates the weather on television. When I first met her when Fox Weather was just launching, she gave me a huge hug and was just so friendly in person as she is in front of the camera. So this was a fun conversation to have and an important one after a week of covering an historic hurricane. Amy, thank you for being here today. My pleasure, although I wish it was under different circumstances. Well, listen, let's set up another day that we can talk and be girlfriends and talk about what it's like, uh, you know, working here, Fox weather. And you've been here in New York for a long time. Yes, coming up on a dozen years almost. So it's been a stretch. I feel I'm not quite living here longer than I've lived anywhere else, but I'm coming up on that. Where are you from originally? (laughs) Southern Indiana, a little town called Jeffersonville. I always like to say small town, different kind of tough, but that's where I grew up. (laughs) And then how did you get to New York? Basically, I made my way across the country, started in Portland, Oregon, went to Denver, Colorado, spent a little time in Los Angeles, then to Philadelphia, Chicago, and finally New York. Oh my goodness. So you really know a lot of different cities to do the forecast in. It was a way to, yeah, it was a way to get geography down and learn all kinds of different weather systems coast to coast from ice storms in Portland, Oregon to Superstorm Sandy. Well, I think it's really important. I grew up in Canada. I remember the ice storm in the 90s where we had the National Guard come from the U.S. It was, we were shut down for weeks. And that's, you know, that's a good way to start because living in Canada and having a storm like that and realizing you really have to depend on your neighbors, right? And after a storm like that, after hurricanes, after ice storms, after tornadoes, I really feel like you see the best in humanity. And that's what we kind of need to hold on to right now. Absolutely. I mean, you start to realize the independence that you like to create in your own dwelling is really dependent upon your neighbors. I mean, we just can't exist without each other. When someone's in need, you really do see the true colors of community. I I like to think of New York as a great example. It has a reputation for being sort of a harsh place, which it's a difficult struggle to live in a big city, right? Mm -hmm. But if you are in need, especially in a situation like a storm or a disaster of any kind, New Yorkers are the first to be opening their doors, being there to volunteer and saying, what can I do to help? New Yorkers give themselves a bad rap. (laughs) We do kind of, right? Uh, We have this grumpy look on the subway, but trust us, we're just trying to figure out where our next meal comes from. (laughs) So we will help you get directions anywhere. I mean, you have a really amazing career. What brought you to Fox weather. You know, I, I have spent almost, I spent most of a decade in New York City with ABC. And when this brand 
was brought to my attention, I thought this is exactly what we need. We need a cycle of talking about the weather all the time. There are so many massive events. We can talk about billion dollar disasters that have happened over just the last decade. And this is changing the way we operate, not only as individuals, but as a country. So there's so much economics behind weather. It's a conversation that people want to talk about, not just about what to wear, but also about how they're going to live their lives. And so I thought this is a perfect spot for me. I also had spent some time um, researching water and storm water. Um, and so all of those things, I think, are a really important part of our future. I'm the mom of four kids. <laughs> and so I wanted to just give a little bit more than just a daily forecast. Mm -hmm. And this was a great spot to land. And this is almost a year anniversary, right? Hard to believe it, launching just, just under a year ago. Yeah. This was a big storm. It really was. And when you think about it, uh, I like to say that uh, an eye storm could be a bad omen in a way because yeah, this is... Ivan. Yeah. The, the eye storms are the most retired names. When you look back at the alphabet, which we name storms because we want to keep them separate, they used to say, well, there's two storms out there. How do I identify them? They came up with an alphabet in the 1950s, and they used to do it with just women's names, by the way. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1970s, they brought the men on board, and then you have the alphabet. But when we get a storm that's so destructive and so damaging or even deadly, then they will retire that name to be referred to in the future. And so there have been 13 eye storms that have been retired. I didn't realize And that. so now you look at Ivan and of course um, the omen does come to fruition because uh, this storm will go down in the history books. Mm. You know, it's tough. This is a tough place when you're forecasting this storm. And I remember, you know, you kind of look back at how we got here and there was a lot of emphasis on Tampa Bay and I think about this a lot I've thought about it and it I mean it almost brings me to tears because we do our best to give people the best information they can have to make life-saving decisions for themselves and their families and the reason why we went with Tampa is because it's one of the most vulnerable places on the U.S. coastline much like New Orleans is in Louisiana, right? So we saw that storm moving towards Tampa, and it was like, okay, well, look at Tampa. Look at the way it's shaped along the coast, and this could be a tremendous impact to this you know, vulnerable area. And in doing so, I feel like we might have done a little bit of a disservice for Fort Myers, even though Fort Myers was in the cone of uncertainty. And so I feel like I blame myself a little bit. Right. But the thing I've learned here about this is, number one, uh, we don't control the forecast, obviously, but I think there are some lessons I've learned as a forecaster and how messaging could change. Um, when we take a look at that cone, a lot of times it's just this geographical representation on a map. And a lot of people default to think, oh, well, the storm's going to go right down the center of that. And really, all that cone does is measure the low pressure system, the center of the storm. So it can actually go further to the east or further to the west. That really is the cone of forecast. And what we've seen with, with Ian is that a massive storm like that in size can really affect people outside of that zone. So if anything I could do better as a forecaster is talk about that messaging. That being said, the force of Tampa Bay, what happened there with the reverse surge, pulling that water out is a 
example and piece of evidence to the power of Ian. It pulled the water out. You saw dry ground exposed in Tampa Bay for almost 24 hours. That water then scooped up and it was delivered someone else. Sparing one place doesn't necessarily mean good news for your neighbors down the road, but certainly was an illustration of the power of that storm. And it could have turned right back in and thrown that surge into Tampa. Instead, it continued parallel against the shoreline and, and was delivered into Naples and Fort Myers. And such a large storm, too. I mean, you would look at Charlie, which was in 2004, a, you know, made landfall almost in the exact same area. But Charlie was like one third the size of this. Yeah. The eye of Charlie, I think, was less than 20 miles wide. And uh, Ian was almost 35 miles wide at the center, which allows for a bigger storm, like much bigger and broader rain band reach. And it also allows for a longer eye wall duration. So the eye wall is the strongest part of the storm. And then we've got the eye, as you and I know, which is sort of a calmer um, portion of the storm. But if you've got an eye wall that's larger, you've got a longer duration of the winds, the waves and the surge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're taping this now on Thursday. We still don't know the scope of the damage is going to take days and weeks to really get in there. It, it is unfortunate. Um, uh, you know, just today, um, Sanibel still has no communication. Uh, this is a tiny island, just such a beautiful place, a paradise that people have gone to, um, hoping that a, a hurricane would never come there. And traditionally, it's not a place where we look for a lot of forecasts. But uh, this could be a stretch of the shoreline that's changed forever in yeah. really dramatic ways. And we, we know the search and rescue is still underway there. Yeah. And everyone knows somebody that lives in this area. I mean, my aunt and uncle have a place in Fort Myers and they don't know what it looks like right now. So I've heard, you know, everybody coming. Oh, my uncle or my friend lives there. I haven't heard from them yet. I mean, it's just it's I mean, I feel like I could cry at any moment because you do you do find everybody's got a connection there. When you look at the numbers of new people who have moved to Florida, that is also something to consider that really does make you stop and think Uh, you take the census from 2010 to 2020, three million, almost three million new residents in that 10 year span, which we really haven't had had a big landfall in that 10-year period. Mm-hmm. And then you take into account what happened with COVID, which they, they estimate a 497,000 increase in population in just one year from 2020 to 2021. Half a million people coming on top of that, you know, two and a half, three million who've never really lived through a storm. This was their initiation. They may not have had a preparedness plan. Some of them moving to West Florida thinking they're never going to really have a landfall. And uh, this is this is the welcome. It's really, really uh, impactful to think some people may have never prepared for a storm like mm-hmm. this. What do you think of <laughs> Don Lemon bringing the co- climate change into this? I, you know, I don't like to get political, but I saw that, uh, was it the director of NOAA? He was trying to give a forecast before the storm hit and he was, you know, bringing the the radar and the satellite presentation and showing where this could, you know, devastate parts of Florida. And I saw Don Lemon say, is this climate change? You know, is this because of climate change? And it, it got my back up because, yes, we have to talk about climate change. There's no question. But this man's time 
needed to be spent wisely warning people in advance. And that bothered me. How do you feel? Well, number one, climate change should never be used sort of as a weapon or a storm shouldn't be used in the climate change argument, I should say, because one storm doesn't really represent climate change. That's the number one uh, piece of information I would want people to really sit and and settle with. But Don Lemon brought to uh, his point, oh, I've seen hurricanes. I live there. It's been so much worse. Well, really, uh, I hate to take Don Lemon back 100 years because the early 1900s, we had so many more frequent, powerful Florida landfalls. I mean, if you want to get into historical science data, you would have thought it was Armageddon, the early 1900s with Florida hurricane landfalls. So really, if we're talking about relative to time, it's really not about the frequency of storms that are happening in Florida. There's just more people living there, number one. But number two, we can measure them like never before. We've got the hurricane hunters. We've got the sail drones. We've got everybody out there looking at the storms, giving us data so we know what's actually happening. What I would say the argument is here, the climate change is, what does warmer sea surface temperatures do to impact a storm like Ian yes. 10 to 15 years from now? That That's really where the argument you know, is down the road, not in the middle of a forecast. That's ridiculous. But also just his whole approach is flawed because it's not scientifically sound. Mm-hmm. I agree. It made me really angry because I just thought to myself, when I am on television and I have two minutes to deliver a forecast, you got to, you know, you got to decide what is the most important information that you have to get out in that limited time. And he took that man's time that he could save a life to bring in a political argument. You know, listen, we can have that conversation after the storm. Mm-hmm. Yes, There is the potential for these water temperatures to help strengthen a storm. But we have to have that conversation afterwards, not when people are trying to decide what they're going to do with their family. Absolutely not. It's just too, there's, the time is too precious. And we, we are seeing also storms rapidly intensify before making landfall. So every moment is precious. We also see something happening with the storm as it makes landfall. And it can have ripple effect for inland communities. So yes, the time was wasted on it for sure. What I would say is that there are great conversations to be had about recent storms since uh, 2017. About four or five major hurricanes that affected the United States have had rapid intensification offshore. What that means is that we're seeing storms get stronger right offshore, which means our preparedness levels need to change, our alert systems need to be more um, on on par, and also our ability to react. We have to realize that we are living on ocean fronts. We are living in vulnerable spots. We have to take responsibility personally for that, either adjust our homes, adjust our communities, or get together, band together as communities and say, this is what we want to happen to protect ourselves. Um, It's not just a wait and see what happens with a horrible storm coming your way. If you want to live on the shoreline, you've got to do things and take measures to be prepared for the big storms. Right. And 1921, I think, was when the big hurricane affected Tampa Bay. I think they had 20,000 people living there, and now it's 400,000 people living there. Insane, right? Right. So we have to take that into account. And, you know, what do we do? What do we do as forecasters to make it better? It's hard. I think that the communication is the number one thing. We do our best. We do have short amounts of time to talk about it. I think that's sort of the beauty of Fox Weather and the brand is we're going to have more time in a stream to talk about things. We also have to communicate in the right way urgency 
And then we have to know the right questions to ask. Sometimes I think knowing all the answers isn't really what it's about. We do our best to come up with what a forecast is going to be, but we've got to be asking ourselves what are the right questions to ask. Ask forecasters, ask our experts, like a person like Brian Norcross, who's been studying hurricanes uh, for his entire life, really uh, the last 40 years looking at the science behind them, asking the right questions, and then being able to apply that to the message and the viewers, I think that's where the magic lies and that's where we can get better. We're never going to have a perfect science. We do have better technology all the time, but our messaging can be refined. The way we talk to people and how we communicate that message of protection and personal responsibility. Weather is a big topic that we need to talk more about. I think so. Weather affects everything. You give me anything, I can somehow relate it back to the weather. (laughs) It's true. Where What happened with you and Sandy? That was an interesting storm because we had to do our jobs while our families were impacted. I remember I was here in the city when it was happening and my husband and my children were out on Long Island and it was really tough. And he's also a first responder. So mm-hmm. it was juggling all of these things like me forecasting a storm that was going to potentially impact us, having him also trying to take care of the kids right. and you know, doing his job, trying to get information out to the FDNY. How, how did it work with your situation. Well, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. We'll do it on the microphone today, but my neighborhood is the neighborhood that your husband protects. Yes. So I have raised my four children on the Upper West Side. And when I became a single mother on the Upper West Side, one of our first stops was the fire station Mm. because we learned how to react to a fire in a high rise. We'd lived in homes our entire life in the Midwest. We came from Chicago. And so the first stop I wanted my kids to know about was how to react in a fire in a high rise and where to get uh, help if you were out on the streets and couldn't find it and you were in trouble. And so the firehouse was one of our first stops. And so your husband, the leader there in that firehouse was a big uh, resource and the, and the, the men and women that served there, um, uh, uh, there and I'm trying to, the cavemen. Yeah. The cavemen right there in Lincoln center. Yep. 4035. So, 4035. So uh, shout out to them. But definitely during Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, my son reminded me the other day as we come up on the 10, 10 year anniversary for Superstorm Sandy says, Mom, I remember when they said to us that we were going to miss school for Sandy. We were going to miss school for Sandy says, but it didn't turn out to be a good thing. Mm. And uh, how scary it was just to ride out the storm in the city and um, see the lights go out and see the winds and a high rise. We were living up on the 20th floor on the west side, of, uh, right near the Hudson river so it was it was a tough time and we were forecasting of course 24 7 i think we went 36 hours straight on the air something like that and uh, it turned out to be a worst case scenario and you're delivering that news to a population yes but you're also thinking this is happening where i am right now yeah yeah and how did you fare? How do you did? We did okay. I mean, my kids all, you know, still remember very vividly the water, the wind, the rain that came with it. And for myself, I learned so many lessons about how a storm can react differently in different areas. Mm. I think back to Breezy Point, not only being washed out by the surge, but also set on fire. I think about Staten Island, which has never really truly recovered. They have places that used to be neighborhoods that are now marshland. And then you think about the Jersey Shore that literally had its trajectory in the in the shelf line of the shore changed forever by the power of Sandy. Mm-hmm. So really just incredible lessons as a forecaster. And uh, personally, thinking about living in a city, thinking, well, that, that you know, you're going to be safe in a city. That's no, no problem. No, 
20 feet up, we're thinking, okay, are the windows going to hold? Is it going to be too strong at a higher level to even be sheltered in place? Mm -hmm. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. So for you, when you look back, like, you know, how do you gauge yourself or how do you, how do you, um, you know, balance, I guess is the right word. You want to, you want to bring attention to something like, for instance, Ian, what we just went through, but you don't want to scare everybody that they're like, oh my goodness, I've got to like, you know, do all of this, go buy toilet paper for days. It's so true. There is a direct balance. I remember back in Sandy when we were looking at the what, what you call the slosh models. Now, the slosh models are basically surge models. And the surge models tell you how much water is going to come inland onto dry land. And so the day before Sandy, we're looking at the slosh models. And um, it was a weekend heading into the storm. And uh, I, I'm sitting at the desk. And I remember telling the co-anchor, I said, you know, looking at the slosh models here, um, part of Staten Island is underwater with this storm. The next morning she came in, she says, I'm going to go to Staten Island. I'll be that reporter. She went out. And of course, we saw the big, huge tanker that was put onto the shoreline there. And it turned out, she says, I can't believe that that forecast and that information verified and that you sent me to the right spot. Mm. She says, nobody else was on Staten Island. And and I think that back to those things is, is looking at the detailed science that we can and figuring out how to give that message or how to position people in the right places to tell the big stories mm-hmm. is also a very valuable tool because we don't want people in harm's way. So if we can use information to help our newsrooms, to help our coverage in telling that story so people don't have to be there to see it for themselves, they can confidently walk away from it knowing they'll see what happens but not be in harm's way. I think that is another powerful tool that I took away from Andy, that we can do. And right right here with Ian was a great example. I mean, across the Fox platforms, I think we had 16 uh, people on the ground, crews out there with reporters as the eyes and ears for the public so that they don't have to stand on the beach and see what's happening. They can get that imagery and stay safe. How do you feel about that? Because I will say I am not a big fan of being out there, right? I just, I I like snowstorms. I'll go out and do a snowstorm because I always like to do the snow angel afterwards. <laughs> but it, I can't, maybe it's being a mom. It's hard for me to watch Robert Ray or any of the, the team out in hurricane force winds, like holding on to a, a signpost to steady themselves. And I know there is value in that, but it also, also, I can't watch it. <laughs> I know. It's really nerve-wracking. Only recently have I been able to really start to appreciate people who are prepared and experienced and aware to go out into storms. But I remember literally 20 years ago, the year was 2003, it was Hurricane Isabel, I was in Virginia Beach. And we were out on a barrier island. I was with a photographer. I was actually driving because he was taking pictures as the storm made landfall. And as I was driving, I am saying, turn around. I got to turn around. I got to back up because the water was literally coming over the barrier island road. And he's like, no, let's just get one more shot. No, let's just get one more shot. We literally had an argument on tape that we later looked at because uh, I was like, no, it's too dangerous. There is such a fine line between covering these storms and then putting yourselves in harm's way. It takes us science. You want the most responsible people doing it. 
And unfortunately, we are in a culture of social media where everybody wants to become a storm chaser. And uh, we have seen, uh, sadly, um, not so great endings to some of this. It has turned deadly for certain storm trackers um, out on the streets. And so it's important for people to realize it's a profession. People who've been doing it, been doing it a long time. And there's a lot of thought that goes in behind it. Mm-hmm. And you listen, the people at Fox would, would say no problem if you want to turn around and you don't want to go exactly. out there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but sometimes you get that sort of, um, you get that urge to want to be in the middle of it and see it and witness it and, and bring that back. And you do have to temper that with the reality of the power of Mother Nature. You are up against deadly storms. Yeah. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Well, funny you should ask, because <laughs> one time uh, I was out on the streets and a police officer said, oh, Amy Freeze, that was a great name. I said, yes, instead I could have been a police officer. And I give him the, you know, freeze. guns with my finger. Yeah, freeze. <laughs> and uh, he got a good laugh out of that. Um, I always tell my mom and dad, we could have like had a frame store and we could have been like the freeze frame family. We could have framed up things. Um, I don't know. We could have had ice cream. Remember the, the brand taste? Freeze. Yes. We could have had our whole. We could have had a whole ice cream brand. That would have been so delicious. <laughs> but uh, you know, sadly, I did not know I wanted to be a meteorologist until I was into college. I mean, I wanted to be a veterinarian for a while. Mm. I couldn't. I couldn't pass the science classes for veterinarian and anatomy. So I switched over to journalism, and I got a, a broadcast um, communications degree. Then I just walked into this job in Portland, Oregon, where they said, we need uh, someone to do entertainment. And I started in entertainment. The main meteorologist uh, wasn't able to do his job. He had a health emergency. And so I stepped in and they said, freeze is the perfect name. So I went back to school. Had I known early, it would have been good. Yeah. Because I had to go back to school, get another degree in meteorology. It was tough. I had to work hard at it. Um, I had my kids at the same time. I was working full time. I remember um, later I started my master's degree um, right when my daughter Kate was born. Literally, she was born and I started my master's degree. By the way, it didn't work out that way planned because she's adopted. And so I didn't know that she was going to come right as I started. But um, I powered through the education and it paid off. So the name is kind of, yeah, it's a match. And, you know, there can be some, uh, you know, a a good chuckle out of it. People like to talk about it. It can be a talker. But in reality, it did lead me in a direction which I feel so fulfilled because I did follow through with the science. I did follow through with figuring out how to be a meteorologist in the best way possible. And it really has paid off and been a rewarding fit for me. Mm -hmm. So uh, my dad is Mr. Freeze. Yes, that's true. (laughs) You know, I didn't know that because, you know, there are a lot of uh, people that do the weather that make up their last name to fit. I'm trying to think. There's like, there's a stormy out there, right? Like, yes, there are a bunch of them. There are people out there that did weather that changed their last name to fit the job. But you were born with freeze. Born this way. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you think, where do we go from here? Um, You know, picking up the pieces with Ian. I think the fact that we haven't had a major hurricane in a while. And the other thing. I would bring up to Don Lemon is that it's been a really quiet season. And I always think to back back to Max Mayfield, who used to be mm-hmm. the the director, the hurricane director um, at the National Hurricane Center. And he says it, it only takes one to make it a bad year. That is it is 
definitely the quote of a lifetime for the Hurricane Center. Uh, it only takes one storm. Some seasons are extraordinarily busy. Other seasons are not. And what we have to learn from that or the takeaway is that you have to be ready for every storm. And we can't necessarily bank on uh, a blanket statement of climate change to say every storm is going to be bad. We also can't deny the changes that we are seeing in our environment every day and figure out how to adapt and live with them. We are not going to be able to erase some of the things that are happening in our world. They could be caused by a million different reasons, but the fact that we are seeing change means that we need to adapt. And my personal philosophy is that we should embrace all the things around us, meaning our technology, our innovation, and we can adapt to a future and not only adapt to it, but also flourish in it. Mm -hmm. We can create business. We can have economic growth. We can have so many things that come from a changing environment that better our lives. Mm -hmm. Some things are going to change that are irreversible, and it might be disappointing on some levels. But instead of dwelling on that, we have to embrace the change we are capable of, you know, being a part of, quite frankly. What's it like being in a, a business where it used to be very male dominated? <laughs> well, I'm the oldest of five girls, so um, we never had too many males around. But my dad would always say, I've got my own basketball team. So some, somehow that made me feel uh, good about being a, a girl and that I could take anything on growing up. Um, it certainly was difficult in the beginning. Um, I can certainly think back to uh, different experiences. Um, even a time where I had a boss uh, early on who said, don't be so good with the computers in front of the other, in front of the other meteorologists. Oh, You're goodness. doing it too well. And uh, he's like, you know, keep keep it tempered. And um, I remember some of those moments, and I didn't get offended by them in the way that I think sometimes people can get offended and have it be a detriment. Instead, what I did is I took that as people who were not intelligent enough or sensitive enough to to invite me to the to the new experience. And so, yes, there were difficult times, certainly um, young coming up. But what I did, instead of allowing it to offend me or turn me off, I looked for opportunities to do my very best. There's a great quote by Steve Martin, which is, be so good they can't ignore you. Mm. And if you go to that quote, be so good they can't ignore you, it kind of takes away that ability for people to suppress you. So I looked at any of those moments of suppression, including uh, when I was in Chicago, I was the first uh, female meteorologist at night in a very male-dominated market, and I would wear dark suits with white shirts every night. Okay? <laughs> really? Oh, yes, because I thought if I dressed more in line with what they were doing, that it would increase my credibility. And it was only when I was about two or three years in that I realized, you know, I'm going to wear a dress. I'm just going to change it up and wear a dress and started to just feel so much more comfortable in my ability as a forecaster that I started wearing dressers. And I felt I did better forecasting. Like I was myself and people enjoyed seeing me as myself. And so uh, it's hard sometimes when you get in a situation where you may not feel like you fit, but instead of being offended, taking that opportunity and sort of figuring out how you can raise your game to be at that level to where no one can question you, that's been the payoff for me. What a great role model you are. 
Well, I, I, you know, we can try, but I've learned because of seeing people in front of me. We have to look around us to see other people who've done the things we want to do. Yeah. I can think all the way back to being a little girl, 10 years old, and seeing Sally Ride become an astronaut, oh. and my mom and dad telling me the story, and I wanted to dress up like her for Halloween. So we have to look back to 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 scientists, to women who have been in the fields we want to be in and look to what they're doing and know that it's possible. Have you been out with a hurricane hunter before? I have not, but my name was on the list for Ian. They called me. What? Yes, they called me for Ian and they said, no, we've got to have you in studio. I said, call someone else because this is a hot seat. We cannot give it up. And we had a Fox multimedia journalist <gasps> in in the cockpit when they turned around outside of Ian because it was too strong. The same podcast we're doing right now, I talked to Nick Underwood who was with... Yeah the uh, your multimedia reporter unreal right i, I would, missed that flight and i'm actually do it. glad i would do it but i'm sort of glad i missed that one yeah he even said he was unsettled by it yeah that that is unreal because it was too crazy in the eye of the storm they had to turn around and, and bail out which they normally don't do when you look back at the hurricane hunters i found this out recently um they started hurricane hunting based on a bet basically there was an air force um, pilot and a trainee they were near a hurricane category one they said you think the plane can take it and they went into it janice on a bet came out changed forecasting forever so now we've got the air force squadron we've got the NOAA uh hurricane center of fighting and then we also have those bigger planes that go in when it's it's smaller like a category two or less forget those those aren't the orions can't remember the name of it but anyway there's another plane that'll go in as well that that will see it before it gets too strong and all of those storms have changed how we see a hurricane and the details we get yeah, I think it's really important to sort of shine a spotlight on those people. Yes, of course. They're doing good stuff. I think some of the flights are eight to ten hours long. Can you imagine being in a no. military-style airplane with none of the luxuries? No one's serving snacks, for sure. <laughs> I mean, oh, man, sure, you'd be wearing them later if you even did have a snack on one of those flights. And they're just bumpy and full of turbulence. And he said there were, I think they said that there was a 30-degree turn on one of the uh, wings with that flight. You know, when I was talking to him, there is something really incredible about watching and seeing a fully formed major hurricane and realizing that we are really small compared to what is out there. Some of those NASA imageries where they can capture the storms from space. I mean, it really does put it into perspective. Yeah, it's really incredible. It's it's almost indescribable, like just seeing how a hurricane forms, what has to go into something like that. And in one moment, that hurricane completely can, you know, change a path, a life, a livelihood. I mean, it. I don't know, it should bring us more together, I think, as a population, yeah, instead I of mean, tearing us apart. These storms that turn into monster events are basically rainstorms. The hot, dry air coming off the dust of Africa, you know, and then going out into those cool, moist waters of the, of the Atlantic. That's just how those clouds start to form. And then we get thunderstorms that circulate over a huge ocean. So many factors go into the formation of a storm. The fact that it can even endure over the hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles of the ocean to stay well organized enough to have an impact somewhere else is pretty jaw-dropping in itself. And then... Knowing that we are up against something like that, we don't stand a chance if we try to face it alone. So yeah. we have to we have to remember to stick together, um, whether it's to defend our own property or whether it is to embrace the changes of the future, whatever those might be. 
I think that's a good way of, of ending this conversation. And weather does bring us all together. And I'm so glad the weather brought us together. Me too. It's great to be your teammate. Okay. So you know what? The next time we do this, it'll be girl talk. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Amy Freeze. My pleasure, Janice. Thank you, Amy Freeze, for your friendship and the important work you do warning people of the storms and also bringing the sunshine when we need it most. Before we go, I want to send all my love and prayers to the people of Florida who are hurting really badly right now. Whether they lost their home, their business, or a loved one, I am so very sorry. It's times like these when we really need to help each other and look out for our neighbors. Because it's after the storm when we see the best in humanity. Strangers helping strangers. Even if it's saying a prayer at church or at the dinner table this evening, they need our prayers and they need to know we're thinking of them. If you would like to help in Florida's recovery, Florida Disaster Fund and Volunteer Florida are working together. You can go to www.floridadisasterfund.org. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com and don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review because those are important and you can spread the sunshine. You've been listening to the Janice Dean Podcast on the Fox News Podcast Network. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.